Welcome to the End of Innocence, the JFK Assassination. I'm your host, John Young. In last week's episode, we continued to look at the murder of Officer J.D. Tippett. We focused a lot on the witness statements and the time of the shooting. The time of the Tippett shooting, as placed by the Warren Commission, is 1.16 p.m., but that contradicted many statements by the witnesses that were there that day. Witnesses at the Tippett murder placed the crime happening more around 1.10 or 1.11 p.m., Keep in mind, Erlene Roberts said that Oswald came in the rooming house a little after 1 p.m., about 1.02 or 1.03 p.m., went to his room, got a jacket, and then darted out of the house. It is impossible for Oswald to have covered nine-tenths of a mile and arrived at 10th and Patton to shoot Officer J.D. Tippett in seven or eight minutes. In this week's episode, we're going to pick up the trail of J.D. Tippett's assailant as he heads down Jefferson Avenue and ducks into the Texas Theater. We'll also revisit once again the very high probability that there were two Lee Oswalds in Dallas this day. And what are the odds that both ended up in the Texas Theater at the same time on November 22, 1963? According to the Warren Report, after killing Officer Tippett, Lee Oswald cut through the yard of Virginia and Barbara Davis, then walked past William Scoggins' cab and headed south on Patton. Lee Oswald hurried south on Patton and passed within 60 feet of Ted Callaway, manager of Harris Brothers Auto Sales. Callaway had run out to the sidewalk after hearing what he said was five shots coming from the direction of 10th of Patton. Callaway was on the east side of Patton and saw Lee Harvey Oswald holding a pistol in his hand on the west side of Patton. He said, hey man, what the hell is going on? He said Oswald said something to him, but he couldn't make out what he said. Oswald then passed and turned right on West Jefferson Boulevard. Callaway noticed Oswald's white Eisenhower-type jacket and white t-shirt. When shown the brown shirt worn by Oswald when he was arrested, Callaway told the Warren Commission, quote, Sir, when I saw him, he didn't have on that shirt, end quote. He noticed Oswald's face was very flush and he had dark hair. Callaway said the shots he heard fired that day occurred at close to 1 p.m., he knew this because he had just gotten back from lunch. Callaway then states, quote, After the man passed me and turned right onto Jefferson, I ran around on 10th Street and saw a police officer lying in the street. He looked dead to me. I got the officer's gun and hollered at the cab driver to come on. We might catch this man who shot Officer Tippett. We got into his cab, cab number 213, and we drove up Patton to Jefferson and looked all around, but we could not see the man, end quote. Sam Ginyard, who worked as a partner for Callaway, told the police he heard shots close to 1 p.m. and he saw a white man running south on Patton with a pistol in his hand. He states, quote, The last I saw of this man, he was running west on Jefferson, end quote. Warren Reynolds saw a man run south on Patton towards Jefferson Street and then walk at a fast rate of speed west on Jefferson. He last observed the individual turn north by the Ballet Texaco station, when later shown a photograph of Oswald, Reynolds said he would hesitate to identify Oswald as the individual he saw. L.J. Lewis, standing beside Reynolds, observed the same man and said, quote, he would hesitate to state whether the individual was identical with Oswald, end quote. Harold Russell and B.M. Patterson were with Reynolds and Lewis at the time of the shooting. They identified the individual they saw as Oswald from a photograph. The man wearing a white t-shirt and jacket hurried west on Jefferson and passed the Ballou, Texaco station. Mary Brock said an individual with a light complexion and wearing light clothing walked past her at a fast pace with his hands in his pocket. Five minutes later, Reynolds and Patterson appeared at the station making an inquiry as to whether she had noticed a man pass the station. 
She advised that she last saw the individual when he proceeded north behind the station. Mrs. Brock identified the individual as Lee Oswald from a New Orleans police photograph, but not until 10 months after the shooting. According to the Warren Report, Tippett's killer discarded a light-colored jacket underneath a 1954 Oldsmobile in the parking lot behind the Ballet Texaco station. This left him wearing only a white t-shirt. The jacket, soon found by police, was later described as a gray man's jacket, size medium. As a side note, all of Lee Oswald's other shirts and jackets were size small. There were numerous laundry marks in the collar of the jacket. On the bottom of the jacket was a laundry tag, B-9738. The cleaning tags and laundry marks noted on the inside of the jacket suggest it was professionally cleaned on several occasions. The FBI examined all of Oswald's other clothing and failed to find a single laundry mark or tag on any of them. Marina told the FBI that Lee Oswald only had two jackets, one a heavy jacket, blue in color, and another light gray jacket. She said both of these jackets were purchased in Russia. Neither of these jackets were ever sent to any laundry or cleaners anywhere, she recalled. She always washed them herself. I did an interview back on October 25, 1997 with Officer Gerald Hill, who was in charge of Tippett's shooting investigation. Hill told me that the jacket found at the Tippett sling, which was believed to be Oswald's, bared certain laundry marks, which was traced to a dry cleaner in Washington, D.C. What does all that mean? Where did this jacket come from? It was the jacket that contained bullets from supposedly Oswald's revolver, but their big mistake was leaving the laundry tags that were traced to Washington. Was this just another example of the sloppy job they did in covering up this horrible crime? J.D. Tippett's assailant then continued down Jefferson Boulevard and was next seen at 213 Jefferson by Johnny Brewer at 1.30 p.m. Brewer, a manager at Hardy Shoe Store, was listening to news reports about the president's assassination when he heard reports that a Dallas police officer, J.D. Tippett, had just been killed a few blocks away. A man whose behavior seemed suspicious then walked into the foyer of the shoe store. Brewer said that the man stared at all the displays in the window and acted scared as police cars with blaring sirens raced by. After the last squad car passed in one direction, the man stepped out of the store and walked in the opposite direction toward the Texas Theater. Johnny, when was the first time you saw Lee Harvey Oswald? Uh, I saw him that Friday afternoon, November 22nd. He walked into the lobby of my store. How far in did he walk out there, John? Where, well, just example, a few feet. He was standing right, right where those tennis shoes are right there, just uh, about five feet from the door there. What made you suspicious of this man who walked into the lobby? Well, right after the president had been shot, they broadcast a description on the radio of this man, of 5'8", 5'9", 150 pounds, and this Oswald matched the description. And well, just a few minutes before he walked into the lobby, on the radio they had a bulletin that a officer had been shot here in Oak Cliff, and... He walked in, he matched the description, looked scared the way he stood there. You were standing right here behind standing the counter? Standing right here behind the counter listening to the radio. And uh, where did he walk to? How far well, he, into the lobby did he come? He walked right into the right-hand side of the lobby there, just a few feet from the door, and stood there looking in at the shoes there. Were there a lot of police cars in yeah, the area? Yeah, there was a lot of police cars. Uh, there were some cars coming up Jefferson Street. They made that U-turn there and went back down Jefferson, and when they did... Oswald turned and walked up to the theater. It's at this point where I believe reality set in for Lee Harvey Oswald. I believe Oswald was scared at this point. He begins to realize the full implications of this thing. 
I think for the first time all day, he realizes that he was being set up to take the fall for this entire event. He goes into the Texas Theater, possibly his prearranged meeting point. Though he has $14 in his pocket, he does not buy the 75-cent ticket. Mr. Brewer states, quote, The police cars were racing up and down Jefferson with their sirens blasting, and it appeared to me that this guy was hiding from them. He waited until there was a break in the activity, and then he headed west until he got to the Texas Theater. I left the shoe store and followed him to the theater and asked the lady who sold tickets, Julia Postal, if she had sold a ticket to the guy. She said that she hadn't and I told her the guy must have snuck in and that she should call the police. That's the only report the police got before they sent 15 police cars to surround the theater. And even though the Dallas police have an admirable concern for the protection of property, they usually would have held back a few police cars in reserve, even for the type of criminal who would go into the theater without a ticket. Now this has to be the most remarkable example of police intuition in the history of law enforcement, but I don't buy it. They knew, someone knew, Oswald was going to be there. And just for the record, Mr. Brewer did not actually see Oswald go through the doors and into the theater. Brewer continues to say, quote, I went into the theater and spoke to Butch Burroughs, the assistant manager. He told me that the guy who had come in had gone up to the balcony. I went up to the balcony to have a look. It was dark up there and I couldn't see anyone, so I went back downstairs and told Butch to keep his eyes on the front exit. I went to the back door and waited for the police to arrive, end quote. Brewer states, quote, I heard some noise outside in the back alley and opened the door. A Dallas police officer grabbed my arm and threw me up against the door. Another officer grabbed my arm and started to frisk me. Boy, was I scared, and I told them that I was the one who had Julia Postal call them and that the man they wanted was still in the theater. They brought me back in and we walked out on the stage in front of the screen. The movie never stopped running, but someone turned up the house lights and I pointed to a guy who was sitting near the back of the theater, about three rows from the rear and to my left. The police started walking up the aisle from the front of the theater, telling everyone they passed to leave and get out of the way until they got the man I had pointed out to them, end quote. When the police arrived in the alley behind the theater, Captain C.E. Tower noticed a young man standing beside a pickup truck with the engine running. Officers questioned the young man and searched the pickup, but made no police reports about the incident. Talbert testified before the Warren Commission, but at no time in over 20 pages of testimony was he asked nor did he volunteer anything about the Texas Theater, Oswald's arrest, or any young man in the alley. We will probably never know the name of this man, nor will we know what he was doing in the alley while Oswald was hiding in the balcony. The plan may have been to kill Oswald inside the dark theater, if and when Oswald pointed his 38 revolver at the police. By the way, that 38 revolver had a defective firing pin. But the one thing the conspirators could not control was the number of potential witnesses, both civilian and police. Too many witnesses would make killing Oswald inside a theater difficult, if not impossible. Listen up, this is real important. Johnny Brewer's story matches the official version, but Butch Burroughs, a reliable eyewitness, places Lee Oswald in the Texas theater by as early as 1.07 p.m. Yes, 1.07 p.m., approximately 10 minutes before the tip of shooting. Burroughs saw Oswald from the candy counter around 1.07 or 1.08 p.m. According to Butch, he went up in the balcony. If Oswald had gone straight down Zane Boulevard by car or bus to Jefferson Boulevard, he could have easily made it to the Texas Theater before 1.10 p.m. At 1.15, Oswald came downstairs and Butch showed him some popcorn. 
Keep in mind, this is around the exact time Tippett is shot seven blocks away. After buying popcorn, Oswald then went into the theater on the ground level and sat next to a pregnant woman. Several minutes later, the woman got up and went upstairs to the ladies' restroom. Butch did not see her leave and never saw her again. So is Lee Oswald in the Texas theater buying popcorn between 1.07 and 1.10 p.m.? Or is he at the corner of 10th and Patton shooting J.D. Tippett? Once again, Lee Oswald is in two places at the same time. How could this happen? Butch Burroughs' recollections are confirmed by another witness, 18-year-old Jack Davis. Davis sat in the right rear of the theater. As the opening credits for the movie were ending at a few minutes past one, Lee Oswald startled Davis by squeezing by him and sitting down next to him in a theater with 900 seats and fewer than 20 patrons. Oswald said nothing to him and after a few minutes got up and moved across the aisle and sat down next to another person. He got up again at 1.15 to buy his popcorn. Davis then saw Oswald enter the center section of the theater from the far side. Burroughs and Davis agreed that the police arrived at the theater about 20 minutes after the popcorn purchase. Here's Butch Burroughs talking about seeing Lee Oswald in the theater that day. An agitated figure was seen to dodge into the Texas theater without paying and disappear into the upstairs balcony. Butch Burroughs was the ticket collector on duty that day. Uh, we have our two movies called Lord uh, as Hell, The Holy Murphy, and Cry Battle with Dan Heppel. And uh, we started the movie at 1 o'clock, and I was counting candy behind the candy case. And he also slipped in around between 1 and 1, 7. Evidence shows Lee Oswald did not have enough time to reach 10th and Patton on foot in the first place. Moreover, witnesses place him in the Texas theater at the time of the Tippett shooting. Four questions come to mind. Who really shot J.D. Tippett? Why was he shot? Who was the person who looked like Lee Oswald that Johnny Brewer saw enter the theater at about 1.35? Finally, if Oswald could have traveled the 10 blocks between his rooming house at 1026 North Beckley and the Tippett murder site in 5 to 10 minutes, why would it supposedly have taken him half an hour to get from the shooting site at 10th and Patton to the Texas Theater at 231 West Jefferson Boulevard, a distance of only seven blocks? The original homicide report on the Tippett murder read, quote, Suspect was later arrested in the balcony of the Texas Theater at 231 West Jefferson, end quote. This, of course, contradicts the fact that Oswald was arrested in the downstairs section of the theater. The official police record indicates that there was only one arrest at the Texas Theater, but that may not be true. There may have been a second unreported arrest in which a second man was taken out the rear of the theater and into the alley behind it. During an interview I did back in 2005 with Butch Burroughs, Burroughs said that he saw two different people arrested in the Texas Theater that day. He said he saw the rest of, quote, classic Oswald, end quote, and then three or four minutes later, he watched as the Dallas police arrested an Oswald lookalike. Burroughs added that the second man arrested looked almost identical to Oswald, like he was his brother or something. You can go online today and look up the homicide report of J.D. Tippett. It says that the suspect of Tippett's shooting was arrested in the balcony of the Texas theater. Hmm. 
Bernard Hare, who owned Barney's Hobby House, two doors east of the Texas Theater, had not yet heard about the assassination when he noticed police cars and a crowd gathering in front of his store. He walked outside onto Jefferson Boulevard and was standing there when Oswald was brought out of the theater, but did not know what was happening and could not see because of the size of the crowd. Hare walked back through his store and out into the alley, which was also filled with police cars. He walked toward the theater, and when he reached the rear door, the police were bringing out a young white man who was dressed in a pullover shirt and slacks. The man was flushed as though he had been in a struggle and appeared to be under arrest. He was put into a police car which drove off with sirens going. For a quarter century, Hare thought that he had witnessed the arrest of Lee Oswald in the alley. He was amazed when he learned that upon his arrest, Lee Oswald had been taken out the front door. Who was this man that Hare saw arrested? Could this have been the second Oswald? Johnny Brewer pointed out to the police where Lee Oswald was sitting. The police, however, did not go directly toward him. Rather, they slowly started at the front of the theater as if waiting for him trying to escape. After several minutes, they reached where he was seated. Officer Nick McDonald approached him and told him to stand. Oswald stood up and shouted, quote, Well, this is it, end quote. He hauled off and floored Officer McDonald with one punch to the face, allegedly drew a revolver from his waistband of his slacks, pulled the trigger, and fired at McDonald point blank. McDonald reached out for the gun, and the webbing between his thumb and his forefinger slid between the firing pin and the bullet shell, preventing the primer from being struck and saving his life. Other police officers jumped into the fray, and Lee Oswald was subdued. He shouted that he was not resisting arrest and screamed, quote, police brutality, end quote. At the time of Oswald's arrest, Johnny Brewer heard at least one of the arresting officers shout, quote, kill the president, will you, end quote. However, at this point, the police had no reason to suspect Oswald's involvement in the assassination. Any members of the Dallas police drawing a connection between Lee Oswald and the assassination at this point must have been part of a conspiracy. It will be half an hour before he was even a suspect in the murder of the president and ten more hours before he was charged in that crime. Only two of the people in the theater audience were even questioned by the Warren Commission. George Applin, who was sitting six rows from the rear of the theater when the lights came on and the arrest began, testified in 1964. He says, quote, There is one thing puzzling me, and I don't know if it has any bearing on the case, but there was one guy sitting in the back row where I was standing at, and I said to him, I said, quote, buddy, you better move. There is a gun, end quote. And he says, just sit there. Applin told the Warren Commission that he didn't know who the man in the theater on November 22, 1963 was. But he did know who he was two days after the assassination. In 1979, Applin confessed to the Dallas Morning News that he, in fact, had recognized the man who had been in the theater as Jack Ruby. But we also have people at this time that placed Jack Ruby at Parkland Hospital. Man, what a rabbit hole this is. Applin would go on to say, quote, I was afraid. I'm a pretty nervous guy anyway. After I saw that magazine article where all those people had come up dead, it kind of made me keep a low profile. I'm sure Jack Ruby was the man I saw in the Texas theater at the time of Oswald's arrest. He was just sitting down, just watching them. And when Oswald pulled the gun and it snapped at Officer McDonald's head and missed the darn thing wouldn't have fired. And when Oswald pulled the gun and snapped it at Officer McDonald's head, that's when I tapped Ruby on the shoulder and told him he better move because those guns were waving around. He just turned around and looked at me and said, quote, just sit there, end quote. Then he turned around and started watching them try to apprehend Oswald. 
Applin learned who Jack Ruby was when his picture was published two days after Oswald's murder. Did Oswald go to the Texas Theater to meet Jack Ruby or someone else? Was he set up by a double who led authorities to the theater? Was Oswald supposed to be shot while trying to escape by the police or by Ruby? The official report states that Lee Oswald entered the theater at 1.45 p.m. and that by 1.51 p.m. he was under arrest and placed in the back seat of a police car and was being driven to the police station on Main Street in downtown Dallas. He was fingerprinted by Lieutenant K.P. Knight and formal arrest photos were taken. Like I stated before, the original homicide report of the Tippett murder read, quote, Suspect was later arrested in the balcony of the Texas Theater at 231 West Jefferson, end quote. This, of course, contradicts the fact that Oswald was arrested in the downstairs section of the theater. The official police report indicates that there was only one arrest at the theater that day, but we know from talking to witnesses this was not true. So let's recap a little bit and talk about what was Oswald actually doing at the Texas Theater. Oswald was arrested in the Texas Theater at 231 West Jefferson Boulevard. There are two narratives here. The first, official narrative, says he was moving away from the Tippett murder and a shoe store owner named Johnny Brewer saw him duck into his doorway as he heard police sirens. Brewer was just listening to the radio news about JFK's murder, so guessing what was up, he followed the suspicious-looking man up the street until the man ducked into the Texas theater. Brewer, playing vigilante, asked the ticket saleswoman if she had sold a ticket to this man. She had not, but the owner of the concession stand inside the theater confirmed that he had a set of doors swing open but had not seen a man pass. Brewer worked out that his suspect had snuck into the theater without paying and had now gone up into the theater balcony, which avoided the necessity of walking past the concession stand. He called the police. The police turned up quickly. They swarmed the theater and as they entered, the lights came on. There were less than a dozen patriots in the venue with a capacity of 900. After Oswald was pointed out to Dallas policeman Nick McDonald, McDonald raised his gun and turned into Oswald's row. A foot away, Oswald stood up and raised both hands and said something like, quote, It's all over now, end quote. Oswald slugged the cop in the face and pulled out his revolver, which misfired. McDonald wrestled Oswald to the ground, and then other policemen came to his aid. Oswald was bundled and brought out into the police car. The man who had assassinated JFK had also killed a cop, and would have killed the second policeman, McDonald, if his gun had not misfired. That is the official story. But it's not the only story. Some witnesses have other accounts of what happened in the cinema that afternoon. Burroughs, the assistant manager, told the author Jim Mars that someone had slipped into the theater at 1.35 p.m. that day. But that person was not Oswald, who arrived shortly after the main feature at 1 p.m. At about 1.15 p.m., this man went to the concession stand to buy popcorn. This was the man subsequently arrested by police after a scuffle. Burroughs said that Oswald had behaved oddly. In an almost empty theater, he had sat down next to several cinema goers in turn. The last, a pregnant woman who disappeared up into the woman's restroom, never to go back to her seat. Burroughs' story was backed up by Jack Davis, 
who went on to become a local celebrity and radio host, but back in 1963 he was an 18-year-old who had come to watch a war movie. He was surprised that the man, who he subsequently realized was Oswald, came up and sat right next to him in a dark, almost empty theater. Oswald did not say a word, but after some minutes got up and sat next to yet another customer, and did it once again. Later, when the lights came on, he left to see the manager, heard the scuffle at the back of the theater, and the man who had sat next to him during the performance was bundled out by a couple of policemen. What was Oswald doing, moving around from seat to seat like that? An interesting clue could derive from the fact that Oswald had half a cardboard box top on him. Allegedly, this is used by spies to communicate with each other. If the two halves of the box top match along the tear, then that verifies that the other's bona fide. Spies would also do this with torn dollar bills. Could Oswald's behavior be explained by the fact that he was in on the conspiracy without having fired the actual gun and was now looking to meet someone for further instructions? Some witnesses claim to have seen Jack Ruby at the Texas Theater, and there are various testimonies that indicate that Oswald had been a regular at the Carousel Club in his last weeks alive. Ruby had all sorts of links to the Mafia and maybe the CIA. Oswald failed to be shot resisting arrest. The story that his revolver misfired when the cop grabbed him is disputed by the pathologist Cunningham speaking before the Warren Commission. No tape recording was made of Oswald's testimony when he was brought to the police that afternoon. But he told reporters as he moved from one area of the police station to another, quote, I'm just a patsy, end quote. The next day, he was shot by Jack Ruby, officially because Ruby said he wanted to spare JFK's widow, Jackie, the agony of going through a trial. Was he shot the day after because the conspirators had missed the chance to have him shot in the Texas theater? Ruby spent years in prison for killing Oswald, then died of cancer while incarcerated. If he was part of a conspiracy, he paid a heavy price for his sacrifice. One can spend years trying to determine whether Oswald was guilty of shooting Tippett, whether he was the gunman or whether he was just in on a conspiracy. Let's do a quick overview, shall we? The Warren Report describes the murder of Officer Tippett at approximately 1.15 p.m. after he confronted a man walking east along the south side of Patton Avenue. The man's general description was similar to the one broadcast over the police radio just minutes before. Tippett stopped the man and called him to his car. He approached the car and apparently exchanged words with Tippett through the right front or vent window. Tippett got out and started to walk around the front of his car. As Tippett reached the left front wheel, the man pulled out a revolver and fired several shots. Three bullets hit Tippett in the chest and one hit him in his right temple and killed him instantly. The gunman started back toward Patton Avenue, ejecting the empty cartridge cases before reloading with fresh bullets. As the gunman walked and trotted away from the murder scene while still holding the revolver, the Warren report says that he was seen by at least 12 people. By the evening of November 22nd, five of them had identified Lee Harvey Oswald in police lineups as the man they saw. A sixth did so the next day. Three others subsequently identified Oswald from a photograph. Two witnesses testified that Oswald resembled the man they had seen. One witness felt he was too distant from the gunman to make a positive identification. 
The fleeing man, identified later as Lee Oswald, was seen finally by Johnny Brewer, manager of Hardy Shoe Store, located a few doors east of the Texas Theater. After spotting the man acting suspiciously in the recessed area in the front of the store, Brewer went outside. He saw the man ducking into the Texas Theater up the block. The ticket seller, Julia Postal, confirmed to Brewer that the man had not bought a ticket. She called the police. However, the man who shot Tippett fled the murder scene and sneaked into the Texas Theater just before 1.45 p.m. and was identified as Lee Harvey Oswald posed another bi-location problem. Oswald once again seemed to be in two places at the same time. According to Butch Burroughs, the concession stand operator at the Texas Theater, Lee Harvey Oswald entered the theater sometime between 1 p.m. and 1.07 p.m., several minutes before Officer Tippett was slain seven blocks away. If true, Butch Burroughs' observation would eliminate Oswald as a candidate for Tippett's murder. Perhaps for that reason, Burroughs was asked by a Warren Commission attorney the apparently straightforward question, quote, Did you see Oswald come into the theater? End quote. Burroughs answered honestly, quote, No, sir, I didn't. End quote. What someone reading this testimony would not know is that Butch Burroughs was unable to see anyone enter the theater from where he was standing at this concession stand unless that person came into the area where he was working. As he explained to me in an interview, there was a partition between his concession stand and the front door. Someone could enter the theater, go directly up a flight of stairs to the balcony, and not be seen from the concession stand. That, Burroughs said, is what Oswald apparently did. However, Burroughs still knew Oswald had come into the theater between 1 p.m. and 1.07 p.m. because he saw him inside the theater soon after that. As he told me, he sold popcorn to Oswald at 1.15 p.m., information that the Warren Commission did not solicit from his testimony. When Oswald bought his popcorn at 1.15 p.m., this was exactly the same time the Warren Commission said that Officer Tippett was being shot to death, evidently by someone else. Butch Burroughs was not alone in noticing Oswald in the Texas Theater by 1.07 p.m. The man who would soon be identified as the president's assassin drew the attention of several moviegoers because of his odd behavior. Edging into a row of seats in the right rear section of the ground floor, Oswald squeezed in front of an 18-year-old named Jack Davis. He then sat down in the seat right next to him. Because there were fewer than 20 people in the entire 900-seat theater, Davis wondered why the man chose to sit so close to him. Whatever the reason, the man didn't stay there long. Oswald, as David would later identify him, got up quickly, moved across the aisle, and sat down next to someone else in almost a deserted theater. In a few moments, he stood up again and walked out to the lobby. Davis thought it was obvious that Oswald was looking for someone. Yet it must have been someone he didn't know personally. He sat next to each person just long enough to receive a prearranged signal in the absence of which he moved on to another possible contact. Back out in the lobby at 1.15 p.m., Oswald then bought popcorn from Butch Burroughs at the concession stand. Burroughs told author Jim Mars and myself that he saw Oswald go back in the ground floor of the theater and sit next to a pregnant woman in another apparently fruitless effort to find his contact. Several minutes later, Burroughs said, quote, The pregnant woman got up and went to the ladies' restroom. He heard the restroom door close shortly before Dallas police came rushing into the theater. Jack Davis said it may have been 20 minutes or so after Oswald returned from the lobby when Burroughs saw Oswald sit by the pregnant woman, that the house lights came on and the police rushed in. The police arrested Oswald in a curious way. They entered the theater from the front and back. 
blocking all exits and surrounding Oswald. Officer Nick McDonald and three other officers came in from behind the movie screen. With the theater lights on, McDonald scanned the audience. Johnny Brewer, who had seen the man who looked like Oswald duck into the theater, showed McDonald where the man was sitting, in the third row from the rear of the ground floor. With the suspect identified and located, McDonald and another officer, instead of apprehending the man in the rear theater, began searching people between him and them. As the police proceeded slowly towards Oswald, it was almost as if they were provoking the suspected police killer to break away from his seat. His attempt to escape would have given Tippett's enraged fellow officers an excuse to shoot him. When McDonald finally reached his suspect in the third row from the back, Oswald stood up and pulled out his pistol. While he struggled with McDonald and the other officers who had converged on the scene, they heard the snap of the hammer on his gun misfiring. However, Oswald, instead of being shot to death on the spot, was wrestled into submission by the police and placed under arrest. The police hustled him out to a squad car. They drove him to Dallas Police Headquarters in City Hall. Butch Burroughs, who witnessed Oswald's arrest, startled me in his interview by saying he saw a second arrest occur in the Texas Theater only three or four minutes later. He said the Dallas police then arrested, quote, an Oswald look-alike, end quote. Burroughs said the second man looked almost identical to Oswald, like he was his brother or something. When I questioned the comparison by asking, could you see the second man as well as you could see Oswald? He said, yes, I could see both of them. They looked just alike. After the officers half-carried and half-dragged Oswald to the police car in front of the theater, within a space of three or four minutes, Burroughs saw the second Oswald, placed under arrest and handcuffed. The Oswald look-alike, however, was taken by police not out the front door, but out the back of the theater. What happened next we can learn from another neglected witness, Bernard Hare. He was the owner of Bernie's Hobby House, just two doors east of the Texas theater. Hare went outside his store when he saw police congregating in front of the theater. When he couldn't see what was happening because of the crowd, he went back through his store into the alley out back. It too was full of police cars, but there were fewer spectators. Hare walked up the alley. When he stopped opposite the rear door of the theater, he witnessed what he would think for decades was the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald. Hare said, quote, Police brought out a young white man. This man was dressed in a pullover shirt and slacks. He seemed to be flush as if he had been in a struggle. Police put the man in the police car and drove off, end quote. When Hare was told years later that Lee Harvey Oswald had been brought out the front of the theater, he was shocked. I don't know who I saw arrested, he said in bewilderment. Butch Burroughs and Bernard Hare are complimentary witnesses. From their perspectives, both inside and outside the Texas Theater, they saw an Oswald double arrested and taken to a police car in the back alley only minutes after the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald. Burroughs and Hare's independent, converging testimonies provide critical insight into the mechanics of the plot. In a comprehensive intelligence scenario for Kennedy and Tippett's murders, the plan culminated in Oswald's Friday arrest and Sunday murder. His Sunday murder in the Dallas police basement was probably a fallback plan from being set up to be killed in the Texas theater by police. There is a hint of the second Oswald's arrest in the Dallas police records. According to the Dallas Police Department's official homicide report on J.D. Tippett, quote, suspect was later arrested in the balcony of the Texas theater at 231 West Jefferson, end quote. 
Dallas Police Detective L.D. Strangfell also reported to Captain W.P. Ganaway, quote, Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested in the balcony of the Texas Theater, end quote. To whom are the homicide report and Detective Strangfell referring? Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested on the bottom floor, not the balcony. Are these documents referring to the Dallas Police Department's second arrest at the Texas Theater that afternoon? Was Butch Burroughs witnessing an arrest of the Oswald look-alike that actually began in the balcony? That would have likely been the double's hiding place after he entered the theater without paying, thereby drawing attention to himself and leading the police to the apprehension of his likeness Lee Harvey Oswald, who was already inside. As Butch Burroughs pointed out, anyone coming in the front of the theater could head immediately up the stairs to the balcony without being seen from the concession stand. The Oswald double, after being put in the police car in the alley, must have been driven a short distance and released on higher intelligence orders. Unfortunately for the plotters, he was seen again soon. With the scapegoat Lee Harvey Oswald now safely in custody, we can presume that the double was not supposed to be seen again in Dallas or anywhere else. Had he not been seen, the CIA's double Oswald strategy in Oak Cliff's shell game might have eluded independent investigators forever. But thanks to other key witnesses who have emerged, we now have detailed evidence that the double was seen again, not just once, but twice. At 2 p.m., as Lee Harvey Oswald sat handcuffed in the back seat of a patrol car, boxed in by police officers on his way to jail, Oswald knew what final role had been chosen for him in the assassination scenario. That night, while being led through police headquarters, he would shout out to the press, quote, I'm just a patsy, end quote. Also at about 2 p.m., a man identified as Oswald was seen in a car eight blocks away from the Texas theater, still very much at large and keeping a low profile. A sharp-eyed auto mechanic spotted him. T.F. White was a 60-year-old longtime employee of Mac Pate's Garage in the Oak Cliff section of Dallas. While White worked on an automobile the afternoon of the assassination, he could hear police sirens screaming up and down Davis Street only a block away. He also heard radio reports describing a suspect then thought to be in Oak Cliff. The mechanic looked out the open doors of the garage. He watched as a red 1961 Falcon drove into the parking lot of the El Chico restaurant across the street. The Falcon parked in an odd position after going a few feet into the lot. The driver remained seated in the car. White said later, quote, the man in the car appeared to be hiding, end quote. White kept his eye on the man in the Falcon. When Mac Pake returned from his lunch break a few minutes later, T.F. White pointed out to his boss the oddly parked Falcon with its waiting driver who seemed to be hiding. Pate told White to watch the car carefully, reminding him of earlier news reports that they had heard about a possible assassination attempt against President Kennedy in Houston the day before involving a Red Falcon. T.F. White walked across the street to investigate. He halted about 10 to 15 yards from the car. He could see the driver was wearing a white t-shirt. The man turned toward White and looked at him full face. White stared back at him. Not wanting to provoke a possible assassin, White began a retreat to the garage. However, he took out a scrap piece of paper from his coveralls pocket and wrote down the Texas license plate of the car, PP4537. That night, while T.F. White was watching television with his wife, he recognized the Dallas Police Department's prisoner, Lee Harvey Oswald, as the man he had seen in the Red Falcon in El Chico's parking lot. 
White was unfazed, but what he did not yet know, that at the same time he had seen one Oswald sitting freely in the Falcon, the other Oswald was sitting handcuffed in a Dallas police car on his way to jail. Mrs. White, fearing what might happen to her husband if he told authorities what he saw, talked her husband out of reporting this information to authorities. The most compelling reports of a second Oswald in Dallas that weekend in November of 1963 comes from Robert G. Vinson of the North American Air Defense Command, otherwise known as NORAD. Vinson not only saw the second Oswald on the afternoon of November 22nd, soon after T.F. White did, he actually witnessed the Oswald double escaping from Dallas in a CIA plane. Sergeant Vinson was already on the CIA getaway plane when the second Oswald boarded it. Vincent also got off the plane at the same CIA base as Oswald's double did a few minutes after him. Robert Vincent is a unique witness to the CIA's secret movement of an Oswald double out of Dallas on the afternoon of the assassination. Vincent would describe the man as 5'7 to 5'9 inches tall, weighing about 150 to 160 pounds, and was Caucasian with dark hair. When Vincent watched the televised events from Dallas later that weekend, he recognized Lee Harvey Oswald as identical to the man he had seen board the plane. By the next morning, Saturday, November 23, 1963, Robert Vincent was at home in Colorado Springs telling his wife Roberta the story of his strange flight. Although they didn't understand what lay behind it all, they both felt it could be dangerous. They agreed not to discuss it with anyone else. That night, while watching the TV coverage from Dallas, Robert shook his head in disbelief. He said to his wife, quote, That guy looks exactly like the guy who was on my airplane, end quote. Are you nuts, she said. It couldn't be him. He's in jail. Vincent says, quote, I swear, that's the guy who got on the plane, end quote. His wife, Roberta, then told him to keep quiet about it. After Lee Harvey Oswald was murdered the following day, Robert Vincent kept quiet for 30 years about the Oswald double he saw get on the plane in Dallas. Robert Vincent has said that since November 22, 1963, he says, quote, Every time I see an article on the assassination, I stop and wonder if I had the answer to this puzzle. Could this small piece of information fit into a larger picture to help us learn what happened? End quote. Thanks to the pieces of information presented by auto mechanic T.F. White, concession stand operator Butch Burroughs, hobby shop owner Bernard Hare, and Air Force Sergeant Robert Vinson, we now have a larger picture of the way in which two men played the role of Lee Harvey Oswald in the Oak Cliff section of Dallas on the afternoon of November 22, 1963. The interlocking testimonies of White, Burroughs, Hare, and Vinson have given us a backstage view of the double Oswald drama directed by the CIA. Next week on the end of Innocence, the JFK assassination, we will take a look at the autopsy of Officer J.D. Tippett. What information could his autopsy tell us about his murder? Also, Lee Oswald is under arrest at the Dallas police station, and you won't believe who was tracking his every movement at the police station that weekend. We'll see you next week.